Hello and welcome to Country Roads Confidential here at Earsports.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network preview football episode here. Believe it or not, Chris Anderson, awkward offseason transitions into an awkward preseason on Friday, the first actual practice, a whole lot to unwrap, solve, predict. Today we'll continue trying to look at position battles. Maybe the most generally anticipated, exciting part of the preseason is talking about the mono mono stuff, or maybe even the mono position stuff. Sometimes guys got to beat another player to get a spot, and sometimes a player has to earn his playing time at one position or another. Maybe what's good for one person isn't necessarily what's best for the defense. You figure those things out during practice, and that is going to start, as we said, August 7th. Who knows how much we'll see or we'll be told. That's all stuff that we'll figure out when the details are released, but nothing can stop you, Chris, from predicting the future accurately and telling me exactly how this is all going to work out. That's what I'm here for, Mike, to tell you all the right answers and tell you how you are wrong and I am right. Um, mm. So do you want to start and then me tell you you're wrong or do you want me to give you the correct answer and then you chime in afterwards? We can go back and forth. <laughs> oh, All right. Oh, you are already getting text? We're not doing, we're not doing that again. <laughs> we're not going viral. <laughs> Let's put that on mute. Okay. Um, position battle everywhere, the one you want to have and don't have. The one you want to have because it's so obvious and so fun to talk about. The one you don't want to have because it doesn't exactly give your team a lot of momentum is the one that West Virginia does indeed have. Of course, I'm talking about long snapper. <laughs> so what happens we can when you start have two there. good ones? Two good ones. Let's start with the other person who has the ball in his hands. That would be the quarterback here. I don't know exactly how much time you want to spend on this. So let's start right there. How much time do we spend on this? Because it's probably the one that everybody has thought of and discussed the most, myself and my long snapping convictions notwithstanding. But it's obvious it has been conversational. The only real football stuff that Brown has been asked about during this pandemic period has been quarterbacks on a couple of occasions. And he's had some thoughtful, I would even think, formative responses to maybe give you an idea what we think. We've also seen defensive players. This is very 2020, Chris. We've seen defensive players tweet pictures of Jared Dagey with the goat emoji and call him QB1. Perhaps there's been a coronation we're not aware about. But we have Dagey. We have Kendall. Kind of a weird co-incumbent status that they share. And we'll have to solve here. But I don't know. It seems like we have an answer, but it also seems like we have a purpose to practice we also have a weird arrangement where it's probably going to be those two not practicing with and against each other because of the way you'll split up squads. Um, I think we maybe have ideas how this will end. I have no idea how this unfolds. I am in the camp that there's an answer already. And and that answer you already uh, mentioned, uh, again, again, with the defensive players tweeting it, but even before that kind of felt that way that Jared Dagey would be the guy this year. But could there be a better season to make sure that you have two two game-ready quarterbacks than this one? With everything that's going on with all the possibilities of players missing time, um, I mean, you always have to be prepared for a player to miss a game or multiple games or the season because of injuries, academic issues, what off-the-field issues, whatever. This year, you throw in, obviously, uh, the Rona 
And next thing you know, you, you need to be deep. You need to have options. And so to have somebody like Austin Kendall, a game ready, former four-star QB who has starting experience right there, uh, West Virginia is in about as good of a position as they can be, I would think, with the quarterback position because they have those two options. Yeah, circumstances intervene, make it really hard to transfer, really hard to determine where you are on the pecking order because there's no spring football. You can't travel and take official visits, so you're pretty much left to play the hand you have in a weird way that turns out best for West Virginia, but also maybe for Kendall. You're right. Who knows what happens to Daigie for myriad reasons. He might not be able to start and finish a season. And I think that the way the practices are set up where, again, that you're probably going to have one and threes in session A and then two and fours in session B. Um, you kind of give Kendall the reps of being the guy, and he's not splitting snaps with Daigie and Garrett Green. He's going to be splitting snaps with Trent Jackson, Matt Cavallaro, and that's not going to be 50-50. That's probably going to be as close to 90-10 as you can get. Um, more than he would get, I think, if he were repping side-by-side with Daigie. So that's got to be good for him and, by extension, the coaching staff as well. Yeah, uh, yeah it's it's strange because when we headed into this offseason, I, I think I mentioned like way back in February, it'd be like, man, it'd be great if – this battle was still going on in the summer. Great for WVU because it'd be nice to keep two quarterbacks around, game-ready, starting style, starting caliber quarterbacks, and kind of got forced upon them, and now it's going to work out even better. I hadn't even thought about what you just mentioned um, with, oh. with the guys splitting up. Look at that. The, the guys splitting up the practices. Yeah, you're right. Now Kendall's going to be getting more reps than he ever would have gotten um, had it just been, say, a quote-unquote normal uh, preseason camp or or practices during the week. Strange thing is that quarterbacks are probably the two people that spend a lot of time with each other. They talk face to face, you know, in between series. They watch film together. That's not going to be allowed. So you're not going to benefit as much there. But otherwise, you know, there's a way to make this work. I'm confident they can figure that out. Let's quickly go into just you know, use your eyes, techniques, fundamentals, skill relative to the position. Um, compare and contrast the two here. Uh, I think we've seen some things of Daigie, and perhaps you have not seen some things of Kendall. We discussed this before, but it is germane to the conversation. But um, who and what are they both competing against? Well, at quarterback, I think you and I, after the very first game, you know, everybody was like, hey, the stats for Daigie, Daigie I'm talking about the very first start for Daigie, mm-hmm. were pretty much the same as Kendall. They weren't drastically better. The offense wasn't some juggernaut. But – if you actually watched the game instead of just looking at the box score, the difference was obvious because Daigie extended plays and he had a more precise ball. I felt like the receivers weren't getting as, as much separation, which was an issue at times when Kendall was quarterback too, but he was throwing it in just the right spots. And I cannot remember the stat off the top of my head, but it, it just came out like a, a month ago that pro football focus uh, posted it, and it was quarterbacks, returning quarterbacks with the best on-target percentage. And, and they're not talking about completion percentage. They're not talking about, you know, it doesn't count if the guy catches the ball if it's a bad pass. They're talking on-target, right in the hands, right in the right spot. I think Diggy was either one or two in the entire country mm-hmm. returning in on-ball percentage when not under pressure. So that that's key. That's um, a whole other issue that we can discuss either today or another day, but um, when he's not under pressure, I think Daigie's ball, his ball skills are drastically better than Kendall's. 
I would agree. Better touch. Arm strength, maybe two. But both those, I really want to qualify that. I don't know that we got to see the full Kendall last year. Really hard to grip and rip when your hand is compromised like his was. We never got a great um, explanation, prognosis on the knee and foot. Um, who knows? It's hard to step and drive if you have a bad wheel, maybe two bad wheels, too. Complicate that with your hand. Who knows? Um, time heals all wounds. He's had a lot of time to heal many wounds, so perhaps he's better off as an extension there. But I do think you could watch him to say, you know what? The ball gets from here to there quicker. It looks better. The receivers seem to catch it more. They're not reaching. They're not lunging. They're not jumping. It's a good point. I think it's a good observation there, too. I would also say, and tell me if you agree with this, too, I think the Kendall, very polished. Um, looks like he's been coached. Looks very mechanical, but not in a bad way. Not robotic. Um, he can run a little bit. He can get outside. We saw that when he finally got comfortable last year. But you look like a guy who is just programmed. Drop back, progress, progress. Move from A to B to C like he's done tens of thousands of untold times probably. I feel like Daigie maybe hasn't gotten as much of that pure coaching. He is the son of a coach. His brother played the position a little bit different, I think, in when and how he learned. And a lot of it is not maybe being told what to do, but maybe watching what to do. And where instinct might take Kendall through steps and processes, um, instinct for Daigie might take him to memories, things he witnessed, experienced, and stored away. And it just seems like a little bit less polish but maybe a little bit more effectiveness the way that Daigie does things. I'm not being, um, I don't think I'm doing his skill any disservice. I just think the way that he is effective is different. He creates those conditions sometimes to be effective away from pressure by getting away from that pressure. Kendall wasn't great at that last year. And sometimes the difference between those two players is just an ability to, to feel as opposed to think. You play based on what feels right. You don't necessarily play or make plays based on what you're supposed to do in a given situation. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think it is. Because let's not forget Kendall's kind of whole journey through his entire young football career. Uh, in high school, he went to a very well-known and, and polished high school, played, was a very efficient quarterback there, very successful. Elite 11, got, coaches, got coaching right. there at those camps from former NFL quarterbacks some of the best uh, quarterback teachers in the entire country, and then went to Oklahoma and learned under Lincoln Riley and and, and all the offensive coaches there. So he, he's not, you know, he knows what's going on. He knows what he's supposed to do. He knows how to play the quarterback position. So I, I think w we can't forget that, especially when it comes to somebody who can step in if asked to and, and make a difference and make it seem like, you know, there there was no loss there for the team. Let's skip to running backs, and I'm not sure we need to spend much time here. This does seem like Letty Brown's job to lose. I'm sure Tony Mathis can make it interesting if he gets a lot of reps, but again, those two aren't going to be practicing together. So, you know, you're going to get 1A and 1B status in practice. So good for both of them. I do wonder about backups. I think in a perfect world, you would like to maybe keep Sparrow on the shelf and let him, let him roll a year from now, let him grow. Still new to the game. But that requires Alex Sinkfield to be very effective, certainly more so than he was last season in, you know, uh, a slash kind of role. Maybe he's a slot receiver. I don't think you need that anymore. But can he do definitely return game stuff? But also, can he be kind of a change of pace back there? Um, really, now's the time for a guy like him. We've been saying that for a while. Has all of the Iron Mountaineer and testing plaudits you can probably get. Um, physical specimen, fast, strong, um, test off the charts on things. But for whatever reason, and not entirely his fault, 
hasn't been able to put it together. Hasn't been healthy. Uh, ankle injury derailed him just when he got going two years ago. I don't think he was healthy from the start to finish last year. Either got moved around, and the running game was so bad that I think that they really narrowed their focus to less as far as players and what they can do. But um, as far as Sparrow versus Sinkfield, a weird competition, but someone's got to be the third back. You love it to be Sinkfield to give Sparrow time, but Sparrow doesn't really have a whole lot of ground to make up, to be quite frank. Yeah, I think there's there's little doubt for me that it's going to be Brown. But honestly, how could you truly evaluate the running back position last year the uh, with the offensive line, the interior of the offensive line, especially in, the, in run blocking? So horrid. I mean, just absolutely horrid. Uh, Brown is the returning, uh, leading returning rusher on the team. 367 yards, 3.4 yard average, and one single touchdown. Um, obviously, that's not great. I mean, all of those numbers are drastically, other than the touchdowns, but drastically less than what he had last season or, or the season before when he was a true freshman getting, what, third string reps? fourth string reps as the running back. So I, I think the promise is there for Brown for to, for him to be something special, to be this lead back, to be a guy that could get a thousand yards, but it's hard to really knock the other guys. And, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, Sinkfield got hurt, moved around a little bit, but can we really knock him for not, you know, bursting through the line when no one else did? So I, I'm interested to see this battle. I think it's going to be Brown, but it, it's going to be – I'm very curious who's going to step into that second role, who's going to get the second carries. I know Tony Mathis seems like an obvious choice, but uh, does it matter who it is if the offensive line isn't better? Good segue here. I would argue zero of the five spots are claimed right now because even Committer, who I think we could say is best overall, is he left or right guard? You know, I mean, He's got one of them, I'm sure, but – if he's, I think he played better. I think that is what they would tell you at left. But Mike Brown is a left guard, and if your best five includes Brown a left guard, then you move Committer to right guard. Um, but if he's left guard, Committer, because Brown isn't up to snuff, who's your right guard then? You know what I'm saying? So it could be different there. But I would say all five are up in the air. How do you handicap these? Do you have a five in mind right now, or do you think all right they'll start with these five? And again, it's really ten because you're going practice A, practice B, but. In a perfect world, you run out five from your practice one, first snap, first series, first game, September 5th. Um, I don't know how you can expect those five to be the same that start August 7th, first snap, first rep, first practice. No. Um, first, I, I got a lot of thoughts on the offensive line. The first is I, 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 I didn't forget that committer moved from left guard to right guard, but I started thinking about it more because – the very first time we ever spoke with Matt Moore, offensive line coach Matt Moore, mm. we asked about left versus right. Do you switch inside, outside? And he said very clearly, very plainly, that he doesn't think inside, outside. He thinks right versus left. So he doesn't move guys from the right side to the left side. He moves them from right guard to right tackle or left guard to left tackle. And that was very important to him. Um, obviously, I think last year was a unique situ unique situation because they had two clear cut starters at tackle uh, that they weren't going to move you know Gamitter uh, out to right tackle and move Kelby Wickline over to the left side or something. But uh, it he made it very clear day one that he didn't like moving guys from left to right, right to left. So I think you're going to see Gamitter 
get to right guard and stay there this year? Center. I think the only other one you can feel pretty safe about is Barron. If he's healthy and he's good to go off season injuries to cure what ailed him last year, but it seems like he could be. And then if not Mays, I would guess that's the only other one I would say for certain I feel good about. And again, I'm hedging on Gemitter because I think he's right or left, depending on who the other guard is. That's fine, though, um, because after Brown, who's your next guard? Blaine Scott? <laughs> uh, you got me. Do you, give May- Do you give Mays a shot inside because he's at least accustomed to playing in the middle? Yeah, probably. I mean, I... When I'm looking at the offensive line as a whole, I know I just said Matt Moore doesn't think left versus right or inside versus outside, but I do. And it seems to me like at least the top four, maybe even the top five linemen on this team are all interior guys. And, you know, Gemitter, Barrett, Brown, uh, Mays, and then Hughes. I mean, I, he might be out of tackle, but I think of him as an inside guy. That's where he was scheduled to play or started to play. So they got to figure something out. Of, of who's going to play out, who's going to be backups, how much they're going to move, and left, first, right, all that stuff again. All right, so we have our candidates inside. We haven't talked about the premier positions, left tackle, right tackle. Um, candidates are, I mean, there's a bunch I'm looking at right here, too, but we don't know who's going to be right or left. We have an idea who tackles are in no particular order here. You're going to have Junior Uzebu. You're going to have Brandon Yates. I was thinking Hughes might be a, a tackle but perhaps not, and who knows? Kind of the point of the preseason. And then Parker Moore. What do you do with Tariq Stewart, though? Junior college um, guy, really big, and I wrote a story about him and kind of said that, like, who knows? He seems to be like a Swiss Army knife where guard, tackle, left, right, whatever. He's going to move people. And his high, his junior college coach said, exactly, put him in, play, he'll maul dudes. I kind of like that recommendation. <laughs> Just find a spot for him and he'll maul dudes. Um but I don't know if he's inside or outside, but it does seem like he could solve a problem somewhere, and he's got to play, too. He doesn't have a year to red shirt. Yeah, I, yeah, when I look at him and I look at his tape, I immediately think guard. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, going back to Hughes real quick, yeah, right tackle. I think he's my pick as well for for the likely candidate to start at right tackle. I think he, he moved back and forth between right guard and right tackle last year, uh, back up for both spots for most of the season. And, but... Then again, that leads me to, is Hughes the best tackle on the team? And don't you want your best tackle on the blind side? And do you want to move him to the other side after what I just said about how Matt Moore likes to keep guys on one side of the line? Right. And and I don't know who goes to the right side because it's so young, so inexperienced. I mean, who? I, I, don't, it's, I think Hughes is literally the only tackle on the entire team that has played an FBS snap, a, a, a meaningful FBS snap, not not special like you know special teams in the fourth quarter of a blowout kind of snap. Um, I'll double check that, but I'm pretty sure. Tackle for sure. I, I mean, I, I don't think Uzebu. I think he might have played special teams. Scott played inside um, occasionally. Um, I'm looking at my my notes here. Uzebu played seven against Oklahoma. He played special teams against Iowa State. So mm-hmm. very limited. Um, yeah, so you see the problem here. Someone's going to have to play that hasn't played, and that's how they're going to build depth too. Here's an odd position battle for you, though, Chris. Mm-hmm. They have talented offensive linemen in the recruiting class. 
Zach Frazier could be a guard, if not a center. You know, if he's got to play sooner than later and they have a really good center on the team, you got to play him. Maybe, maybe play him guard. Who knows? Jordan White and Chris Mayo are both talented players. Mayo, the highest rated lineman in the class. And while White is the 12th best recruit in the class, I think, I think you and I agree that's nonsense just because he didn't get to play a full season. Um, but you have three guys who I think are part of the future. Tell me about the sliding scale of playing them as true freshmen versus playing the likes of, for example, Tyler Connolly or Nick Malone. You know, walk-ons who have been around, a little bit more physically mature, certainly know the system. Zach Davis would be another one. He's been around a long time, um, has actually been in the 2D for a while. But you've got these walk-ons who play positions where you might need them or true freshmen. I think that's a subtle position battle here too because you might not feel great about playing walk-ons because i'm sorry they're walk-ons but what is your feeling there relative to playing true freshmen who may be talented more talented even but they're still true freshmen that's very intriguing to me because with all the unknowns there are easy ways to arrive in a situation where you have to play one or two of them it depends let me ask let me ask you a question before i answer your question mike Mm -hmm. do you think that Madden NCAA football replicates real life as far as guys getting better. <laughs> um, I don't know if you know where, think, know where I'm going with this, but the, the player, like when you play these video games, the guys get better. They mature quicker. Their attributes get better. Um, they become better players when they play in actual mm-hmm. games. So is that how it works in real life? Are these guys going to get better by playing a handful of snaps over the course of 12 games, 10 games or whatever, or are they going to get better by just redshirting and focusing on working out and getting their bodies right? Um, I personally, and again, maybe I'm influenced by all the video games in my youth. I'd play them. I would play these freshmen and not, you know, hopefully not in a serious starter role playing 70% of the game snaps or anything like that, but to give guys a breather to get in there and make a difference when they can. It's the semi-engi complex, right? Yeah. Is he better off playing the prep season or is he better off, you know, retroing at WB for his development? Picture it this way. You know, like when you have fundraisers and you're trying to generate money and you got that sign on the wall and that's a thermometer. And then like the more money you raise, the higher it goes up. You color in a little bit more red every time until you reach your goal. Then all of a sudden, you know, there's cash flowing out of the top. Of that. You've seen that. graphic that sign right imagine that and like the top is actually the level a player has to reach to be ready so when we're comparing the three walk-ons with the three freshmen um and by the way uh connelly was a division one recruit i believe he committed to um toledo or akron i can't remember who i'm sorry but like he was a legit fbs recruit and malone had chances too he just decided to walk on to west virginia and um so they're not they're not slouches they can play a little bit that's fine but those three on one side of the race and then the three scholarship players that were freshmen on the other side of the race, they're going to climb the ladder. And to be frank, the players on the scholarship side are more talented and they're going to make longer strides and greater advancements to the top of that thermometer. They're going to raise the most money, so to speak, before the three walk-ons, I think. So if the top is the level of confidence a coach has to have to play them, I think it stands to reason that the three freshmen are going to make those longer strides and climb faster. What we don't know is where the three walk-ons are. How much of a lead do they have? How much money have they already raised 
versus the other three who are just getting into that competition. I think that's a subtle one to keep an eye on because it's just such an unusual season. But I'm kind of with you. You bring these guys here, you're paying their bills to play them. They're not like they're not like ornaments you put on a tree or like trophies you put on a pedestal. You know, you play them. If you got to play them, you play them. That's why they're here. Um, similar on defense here. Um, you have a handful of players who could be corners and who could be safeties. This is very hard to handicap, but again, it's not player against player. It's player against position. And maybe that's influenced by another player here, but Jaido, Jackie Matthews, Alonzo Adai, those are probably your three leading candidates for corner or safety. It's possible they do both, but um, it could solve a lot of issues here if they figure out quickly how to use guys like that. And again, I don't think Favoris is going to redshirt, um, but does he have a hybrid role? Does he stick on one or the other? How much of that has to do with Matthews? How much of that has to do with Alonzo Adai, who's going to be a fifth-year senior? Um, that just seems like a fun one to me, too. Where do they where do they end up, and how does that play out over the next few weeks? Who knows? But that's why they practice. Yeah, and we haven't gotten any clear clear answer or even trying to read the tea leaves, the social media tea leaves uh, that, that, like you mentioned, we, we try to do um, because – We've seen some of these guys over the past year start in one spot. I believe it was Alonzo Adai who was originally listed as a safety, but then the coaches admitted that he had moved corner. But then when they were doing their Zoom meetings this spring and posting screenshots, he was back with the safeties. And and to Corey Turner was listed as a cornerback, maybe worked there, but might also be a bandit and was in that Zoom meeting room. Um, so it's kind of hard to get a clear picture there. And I, I think there is, you know, I don't think it's deception or actually, but I think they're really prepping these guys to play multiple positions as well, because mm-hmm. we, you and I both heard, um, that when, you know, and this was under, uh, Vic Koning, so it, maybe it's different, but I think it, it kind of holds true for all defenses that as far as the defensive backfield goes, cornerback is, Easier is not the right word. I don't think it's it's not easier. It's it's easier to learn. There's not as much instruction. You don't have to right. understand as much of the of what's going on in front of you. Uh, it's just shut your man down, basically, in this defense. It is you can play the position, play the position, period. And so it was mentioned to us that some guys might start at corner while they learn the defense and mature and learn the college game and then move to safety because it's safety you are kind of steering that whole defense. You have to see the whole field. You have to read the quarterback. You have to read the motion man and try to figure out where the play is going and adjust. And while at cornerback, you can just play. So I think you're going to see some of the younger guys. Maybe they're listed at safety. Maybe they go into some of those rooms. But I think they're going to start at corner and then maybe kind of adjust later. What about cornerback? Because you can look at a handful of people and say, hey, there's an easy way to get to two or three deep here. I kind of like the situation, but you know, you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> like someone's got to be out there for first down on the first series of the first game. And I, I think if you handicap it here, you're putting a couple of people in obvious positions. Uh, Nick Troy Fortune would be one, I would think. And there, you're you're kind of you're kind of projecting a little bit. Dre Miller certainly has, I think, all of the bona fides to play and maybe start. So Miller and Fortune to start, but you're also looking at a guy like Mayo who played a little bit last year, didn't embarrass himself. Um, knows what he's doing, so he has that incumbent advantage. But really, that's about it as far as experience, guys. Unless you're going to play 
someone like a die, someone like Matthews, who does have college experience, uh, different levels, of course, but they know what they're doing out there. Or do you let a guy like O'Coley roll and just say, hey, you're talented and you're going to be here in the future? But guess what, young fella? Future's now. Um, I don't know how they get to four. I think they can. I'm more interested in how they get to two. Who do you think starts? Uh, Fortune is, seems like a no-brainer to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, shoot. Um, like you mentioned, I, I think uh, the only other corner on the roster that saw playing time last year was Mayo. And they kept him to four games. And I believe even at one point, he had an opportunity. I believe this was when Bailey was hurt and Norwood was just, uh, you know, not suspended, but, but um, out for the beginning of a game because of a, a helmet-to-helmet hit. You got it backwards, and, yeah. Oh, I got it backwards. Okay, mm-hmm. and then and Norwood was out, and Washington was out, and so it was fortunate. And it's like, all right, who's going to start the opposite side? And no, Norwood was still in. I remember now because he was supposed to be at safety, and rather than play oh. Mayo, they went with. Remember, they went with Devin Wade, the walk-on. Yeah, that's right. And then so they went with the walk-on, and then. After that didn't work out, still instead of going with Mayo, they switch um, pulled Norwood over from safety to corner. Um, now that could have been some redshirt kind of moves. I can't remember if he had already played in four games or not, or if he was at three, and that would have been four. But that tells me that you know he still needed to bulk up because he was tiny. He was really scrawny when he got there. I think 150, 160 at most. Um, so he just needed to bulk up. His- his body some I think was the biggest issue with him so but he's the only other one that's played that's currently on the roster and so it's a wide open race I would lean Dre Miller I mean he was recruited for a reason he had the four star ratings and the original LSU commitment for a reason so I think now that he's healthy he is going to be your best option opposite or or not I don't know the best option but that would be my guess for the best option is it fair to say linebacker is the offensive line of defense? I love it. I That is the by far the most interesting um, position group to me because I think you can do so much there, and I've seen them move so many guys there, and you have new coaches there. So it that is always a wild card. You know, it, Coaches see different things. They want to try different things. They want to try guys in different spots. We saw – Tonkery play Mike. We saw him play Will. We've seen him play Sam. We saw Chandler start at Will and then I think ended the year as the Mike. Um, Cowan, you know, when Blake Siler was uh, still the coach, they thought he was the best inside guy and the best bandit. Uh, so which way are they going to go if, if all these guys are healthy? Um, I have expressed my deepest concerns for the depth and, and talent behind that spot, but I, I think there's going to be, I think the linebacker spot is group is going to look, even though it's all the same people, it's going to look so drastically different than it did last season, just because guys are going to be moved all over the place. While we're recording this, we have no idea what Tony Fields is going to do, but that is, that's a legit FBS power five level starter who would, who would find a spot right away. I mean, the reason they're yeah. going after him is because there's a need there. I'm, I'm still surprised that, linebacker was not a higher priority on their offseason shopping list if, if they get tell, him yeah sorry if you get yeah. him that fixes a lot yeah if you tell me that your three linebackers are 
let's say Chandler at Will or Chandler at Mike, because I believe Fields kind of played a Will. Uh, they, they had a four-man front, so he was like the weak side inside linebacker. So either one, one of those guys at Will, one of those guys at Mike, and then Cowan and Bartlett switching things up at uh, Bandit. And then you got Tonkery that can slide in at Will. I think, you know, I've had some issues with him at Mike, but when he is playing Will and he is moving towards the line, moving forward, I think he plays well. I think he's a very capable FBS player when he's doing that. All of a sudden, like you add fields and then you can shift guys around and fill all these spots. And suddenly I go from thinking that linebacker is one of the biggest concerns on this team to, holy crap, <laughs> that's good. That's solid. That is a real good group. There's a way that you, you count to six here, right? Because you mentioned Cowan, Bartlett. Let's, let's just not put Yates in, but let's automatically. But you have Lowe, you mentioned. You have Benton, you have Tonker, you have Chandler. That's six. That's, that's not bad. Like, you can do something with that, and you can improve. So you can fill your three spots. How you do it, I don't know, because you may have three guys who are fit for one spot and maybe not necessarily for another. You're asking a lot of Charlie Benton, who hasn't played in darn near two years, and you're kind of hoping that Lowe can remain as productive as he has been in very small doses by project by increasing his playing time and expecting the same productivity. But you could do something with those six. If you add a guy like Fields, you become that much better. It's very optimistic. I get that. But there is a way to do that. Um, tell me why I'm wrong, Chris, because you wanted to do this at the outset. But I think you can make an argument that the best, most important position battle is Cowan against Bartlett. Sure. Because they I should think... both play, right? I mean, if they're if they're both healthy, wealthy, and wise, those two are top athletic talents for the linebackers. Maybe overall at the, among the linebackers. But those two, do you think, would have to be on the field because their side speed and ability comparisons are pretty good. Um, I, I think it's fascinating because one's probably going to be your Mike and one's probably going to be your Bandit, and I'm not sure who it is, but – Seeing those two figure it out or watching the coaches observe and move those two pieces around and make it for the best for the defense, I think that's pretty fascinating because it should be um, a good situation for them where just talent and, and the ability to matter at those two positions that have to be noisy, those are the guys who can make some noise. Yeah, and I think you're right. Those two guys yes. uh, <laughs> those two guys are you know freak athletes, maybe two of the most freak athletes on the entire team. And – the Mike linebacker needs to be the guy that's that's stuffing holes and making tackles, not missing things, not missing assignments. And the bandit is so important for this defense. He is the guy that is supposed to be kind of disrupting. He's supposed to be the disruptor of this defense, uh, wreaking havoc on the quarterback, getting into the backfield in the run game and the pass game. And it didn't really happen at that position for West Virginia last year. And still somehow that defense was pretty darn good. So if they're able to, get that kind of you know disruptive force at bandit that they're looking for that could help make this take this defense to the next level let's close on this chris two guys that well one's been mentioned one has not been mentioned but i think that they are versatile players and then fixes for things that may happen um one is david vincent okoli may be good enough to play if he started before the season was over i would not be surprised at safety or at corner, like safety, maybe not like a free or a cat tradition, but if he was like an extra guy or if he was a nickelback, I don't, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And I wouldn't be stunned if he was a starting cornerback before the end of the season. 
does seem like his ability is there. That seems like a guy who is competing against um, a number of things, but who can also be a solution. And I wonder if you can look on the other side of the ball and look at Sam Brown and just think like, I don't know if he's an outside guy. I don't know if he's an inside guy. He's got the size and speed to think, you know, he could be a vertical threat on the outside, but man, he was using so many creative ways, reverses in the backfield, short passes in high school. And he was effective. Boy, could he be a slot guy? Like a little bit different than maybe a Wright or a Smith. And maybe he's more of a size of a Simmons or an Esdale, but I think he's just a different athlete than those two too. Um, Those two guys, not really position battles, but they're battling to find a spot, I think. And they may not be defined by their skill set, their size, their age. They might just be able to, I hate to say this, but just be a football guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Vincent Ocoli, we've covered a, a million times. He just a next level kind of talent that'll find his way out of the field. And likely this season, Sam Brown, there's a reason everybody pushed late for him. I mean, he originally cl- committed to central Florida and then at the end, it was Florida, West Virginia, Ole Miss, all these schools coming in late, uh, you know, pushing for him. And his senior film is absurd. His testing numbers from the spring before his senior season, I think that alone should have caught the attention of a lot of Power 5 schools and, and caught him before he committed to UCF. So I, I don't disagree about him just having a stupid amount of talent and just forcing his way onto the field. Um, of course, wide receiver or inside receiver, all receiver spots are, are pretty looking pretty good right now, but he just might be too talented to keep off the field. Jerry Judy, C.D. Lamb, Justin Jefferson, and Brandon Ayuk, those are first-round picks in the NBA or NFL draft. Um, those are guys who ran a 4.45 or better 40 and had the height and weight that Brown already has. There you go. I'm not saying he's that guy, but like that's what you're working with there. A guy no, who's too already late, as Mike. fast. You've already said it. You've already said it, Mike. It's too late. It's too late. <laughs> you're working with an awful lot there. All right. Well, uh, that is a, a quick, uh, maybe not as quick, but certainly a, a encapsulated look of what's going to be a prolonged experiment during this preseason here about position battles here. We started at the players will finish it. Keep an eye, of course, on the long snappers. <laughs> It's going to happen. We won't be there to write about it, but we'll be here to talk about it. We'll be back with more to get you ready for the season next time. Until then, that is all for this time. I am Mike Kazaza. And I'm Chris Anderson. We will talk to you later.